Welcome to Grace in Public, preaching and teaching in the heartland and all around the world. We have a wonderful program today, talking about grace words, revival words. For a clip, we're going to talk a little bit about grace words, and it's amazing communication. The ten spies coming out of the promised land, what they said was not inaccurate, but it was not grace communication, and it led a whole nation to be delayed and wandering around in the wilderness. God has words that come from heaven. He has grace words for us. He has eternal words. And grace words, they always create a capacity in us. Moses at the burning bush, having long given up on his call, on his dream, on his people, and it settled into this life that he thought would be for the rest of his life, probably. He had no reason to think otherwise. And yet, standing before that bush that was not consumed, hearing words from God, God built a capacity in him. In Judges 6, God built a capacity in Gideon. He told him how he saw Gideon, how God saw Gideon. And it took Gideon's life in a different direction. And he became a hero a hero of faith, because of grace words. Grace words always strengthen us. We see this, that Joshua was strengthened. We see in 1 Timothy 2.1, Paul's words, saying, My son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace words encourage. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Strengthen and courage. Amazing. Grace words build people, but they attack the flesh. In John 15, 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. And boy, our natural man doesn't like to hear that. Without God we can do nothing. In our weakness, his strength is perfected in us. But it's true. God's word doesn't spare the flesh. But it strengthens, it builds the spiritual man. God's words always give life. In John 6, 63, in the B part, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. God's gracious words are a provision. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, in Matthew 11:29. Grace words guide us. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Shows me my next steps, but it also shows us the path ahead, in Psalm 119, 105. Grace words bring protection. In Proverbs 18:10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it, and is safe. In John 21, what did he tell Peter to do? He said, feed my sheep. He he was saying, my people need the protection of gracious words. My people need the protection of someone who abides in me and abides in my words. And that's what they're going forward in. So maybe Peter knew he didn't have the capacity to love Jesus the way that Jesus was loving him. But Jesus was telling him, I'll give you capacity. Hear my words. 
I'll give you capacity. Gracious words produce faith. In Romans 10.17, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. They provide shelter for us. Hmm. That's why Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Yes, and this church provides a shelter because there are words, in part, but because there are words that are spoken from the pulpit, that are spoken in the midst of the congregation, that are spoken within families, where we can come into an atmosphere of gracious communication, and that provides a great shelter. And it begins to disarm the words that were powerful to hurt and limit us. Words of discouragement that were spoken to us, that were in our formative years. The shelter of gracious words begins to disarm and dissolve that self-image and replace it with a grace self-image. Gracious words are always personal. Mary, Mary. Saul, Saul. Abraham. They, uh, God spoke to his men and women by name. They're always personal, but they're not subjective. And this, God told me this, God said that. And, it, and it's very subjective. Versus, this is what the Bible says. This is what where the pulpit is going in the local assembly that I'm a part of. And I, and I see the will of God, and it's communicated to me through many portions and in different venues. Those venues have biblical basis. And we'll end where we started. That gracious words are eternal. They'll last forever. They build a capacity in us that changes us into a person that will live forever with God in heaven. And those words, heaven and earth, shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. In Matthew 24, 35. So here, listen to this clip about revival words. Every time that God's Spirit has moved deeply, there's been a great moving of God upon the streets of our land. So revival, we've been teaching, means to begin to have an understanding as to who God is and what He's done, and to get to know who He is and His Word as He indwells our hearts, our frames of reference in. Now, revival means to be quickened, refreshed, renewed by the Word of God. For the Word of God is quick. There it is. The Word of God revives. The Word of God revives. It is quick. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing even to the dividing asunder of the joints and marrows and soul and spirit. Then always remember the next part. It is a critic. It is a critic of the motives and intentions and thought patterns of our frame of reference. That's the Word of God. So therefore the psalmist said in 119.154b, Quicken thou me according to thy word. Let it be in Isaiah 8.20, according to thy word. The letter killeth. Memorize the whole New Testament. The letter killeth. The flesh profiteth nothing but the words that I speak unto you, Rhema, they are spirit and they are life. You see, they bring revival in the spirit. They quicken us 
through the Spirit. Now, if the Spirit of Jesus Christ raised Jesus from the dead, if the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, humanly speaking, when his body died, his body, not his spirit, the same Spirit lives in you and me It will also quicken us in our mortal bodies. So we have the amazing quickening power of the Spirit. The Word quickened by the Spirit in a humble heart. Let me say it again. The Word quickened by the Holy Spirit in a humble soul. That's revival. That's revival. That's revival. Revival has been manifested through gifts in 1904, 1905, and many other times. But revival cannot be discovered by the gifts. Revival can only be revealed by a transformed heart and transformed life. Therefore, revival is this. Where the Spirit of God is, there is liberty. And we all, with an open face, behold the glory of God in a glass. And we are changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That means I'm changed tonight. When I get home, I'm changed again. Tomorrow morning, I'm changed again. I get blessed and I'm changed. I go through a trial and I'm changed. How? By the Holy Spirit taking the Word of God and quickening me if I'm humble in my soul. That's revival. A capacity that's categorically ascribed to the specific purpose in God's plan in the situation. In other words, God establishes my capacity to be equal to the circumstance in the plan. Some unbelievable thing happens that I would not be prepared to, to take, but the Word, quickened by the Spirit, to my humble soul before God, enlarges my capacity to experience God's life to fulfill His will in that circumstance, in that relationship, in that trial, in the plan. I must never digress from the purpose of the specific plan that God initiates providentially in my life. I must never deviate from growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ's Lordship in any aspect of the plan. If I do, I will live in a self-destructive carnality in a terrible sequence of defeat and death. Now, we hear words from God, and those words produce in us an ultimate response. An ultimate response. I cannot hear the Word of God without experiencing some ultimate response. I may respond positive. I may respond negatively. I may respond in passivity. But I will respond. When I hear the Word of God, I respond. Now, the Word of God causes an ultimate response. Number two, an ultimate response always brings me or should bring me to an ultimate conclusion. The ultimate conclusion of my ultimate response should produce ultimate convictions that are personal. If, I want you to see this carefully, if ultimate conclusions do not lead to an ultimate conviction which becomes personal, then the ultimate conclusions affect my soul in a dangerous response. Now, let me illustrate it. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. And he said, how many times I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, 
and you would not, and you would not come. The Bible says he wept. All right. When the Holy Spirit quickens those words in my heart, if I'm confessed up to date, and I reckon on God's holy presence, I reckon on God's holy presence, you know what happens? It brings a personal conviction that every kind of soul needs to be loved, saved, and hear the gospel. Every soul. See, that scene which the Word describes should produce a personal conviction and will do so if the Spirit quickens my soul and quickens the Word in my heart. And that's what's so often lacking. That is so often what is lacking. The eye loses its singularity. The heart becomes just a little divided. And the mind becomes just a little clouded. And all of a sudden... We are not quickened by the Spirit. And the Word of God does not produce an ultimate conviction which is personal. Knowledge which is ultimately true, not producing convictions which are ultimately appropriated. Let me put it this way. In the book of Isaiah, in the 59th chapter, we have this great passage in verse 14. And judgment is turned away backward. And justice standeth afar off, for doctrine is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no transgress, no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it sustained him. Now here's a picture. In verse 14, judgment should have read justice, and justice stands afar off. For doctrine is no longer a standard for decision making. Let me say that again. Doctrine is fallen in the street, and justice has to stand way off. And doctrine is no longer the standard for decision-making because it, it has fallen in the street. Is it any wonder that Proverbs, the first chapter, and the 20th verse says wisdom is crying in the streets? Is it any wonder that in Proverbs 5:16 God wants our fountains to be dispersed abroad in living water in our streets? Is it any wonder in Luke 10:10 10, that God says, "Go your ways out into the streets"? The angels in Genesis 19:2 stood in the street all night. They had a burden for Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, wisdom cries in the street. Men and women are in the streets. They filled the city of Jerusalem, and they were around Lazarus' grave. And yet, truth, apart from Jesus Christ, truth is fallen. And you know, this is an amazing thing. When a ministry anywhere in this world preaches the gospel and it doesn't produce equity. When doctrine is preached, but it doesn't produce transformation. It doesn't produce a power inside the soul to quicken the mortal body. It doesn't produce a love that 
transcends human love. It doesn't produce a mercy that rejoices against judgment. It doesn't produce a grace that goes beyond law. It doesn't produce faith rest that goes beyond stress and tension. It doesn't produce faith that goes beyond sight. It doesn't produce a righteousness that goes beyond relevant righteousness and human righteousness and self-righteousness. It doesn't produce a supernatural life which comes into the soul to change it and bring God's presence into the situation. It says justice stands afar off. Now hear me. I'll tell you why it's rich. Let me, let me communicate it to you. Number one, God's relative justice, which is of himself, has to stand afar off. Now what does that mean? It's Psalm 85, 10 and 12 for you and I. It's when there was a meeting at Calvary. And mercy and truth met together and righteousness and peace kissed each other and truth sprung up from the earth. It was when God the Father said, Receive the harlots that believe. Receive the murderers that believe. Receive the drug addicts that believe. Receive the self-righteous people that believe and accept them in the kingdom as they call upon us, as they call upon the Son, as they believe on the Son, and as they receive the Son and turn from their ways through grace. Receive them just as if they've never sinned. That relative righteousness stands afar off. Or, let me put it this way, if somebody has committed sins and they're a Christian, they are a Christian and they've repented, uh, they get forgiven. But where, where the doctrine of recovery is not honored, that doctrine stands afar off. It's fallen in the street. So we have this, this great principle where revival is so deeply needed. What does equity mean? It says equity cannot enter. The integrity of the finished work equals equity. The integrity of the finished work. Let, let me illustrate it. You sin against God. Then you sin again, repent. You sin again, repent. God forbid. And then you sin again and you repent. And all of a sudden, a great act of mercy takes over your life and, and you receive power and God begins to work something in your life and, and you don't do that anymore. But Christians allow truth to fall in the street and the Christians judge you according to relevant righteousness instead of God's absolute justice. What's God's absolute justice? That He can't impute sin to you. That you're seated in heavenly places. That you stand or fall before God. That's what absolute justice has done for you on the basis of Psalm 85 and John 19.30 and 2 Corinthians 5.21. Now, that amazing truth, that doctrine falls in the street. You're all right with God if you recover. But as far as Christians go, as people go, they let the truth fall in the streets. And then you know what happens? Listen to me. Proverbs 1.20. Wisdom cries out. Appropriate it! Appropriate it! Appropriate mercy! Appropriate forgiveness! Appropriate love! Appropriate truth! Wisdom is crying and truth remains fallen. Revival is the Holy Spirit taking the Word of God in the humble soul and bringing in God's life. He may not change the circumstances, or He may, but we are already being transformed, and we're all right with God. And we reveal His nature when tragedy comes. We reveal His nature 
when everything we have leaves us. We reveal his nature and go on with God when sickness comes. We reveal his nature. You see, that's revival. Revival isn't prosperity, although God may help us to prosper. But revival is soul prosperity. Then the plan of God will take care of the rest of it. Thank you for tuning in. If you can, don't forget to send a tax-deductible gift to us. Your generous donation made to our program promotes this broadcast and ones like it going out on the Internet and broadcast on local stations throughout the United States. So please prayerfully consider what you can give. Find out how to give your donation at www.graceandpublic.com. Wasn't that good? Wow. And the Pharisees had words from the Bible. I mean, they used the Bible. They knew the Bible. It was it was the book that they claimed their authority from. They claimed their authority came from Moses. And yet they misused God's words. And they were not grace words. But those who really have life. They've heard they've heard words that have produced life within them, that have produced faith within them. And they become it's become reproduced in their life. Amazing. We'd love to hear from you, so please go to our website and contact us. The web address is www.graceinpublic.com. So perhaps the words spoken in today's program have done something in you. God would desire that those words would find root in your heart. That you you will make a decision about what you've heard. The question is, will that decision turn into a godly conviction? And will that conviction cause you to receive the provision that God has for you? And the provision is salvation through a son. That's the first provision we receive that enables us to become alive. God enlivens us, quickens us. When we receive what he's, his son has done on the cross, we are quickened by that word. And God sets us free and counteracts the effects of death in our life and produces life. So, would you pray? Pray with me now. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Quicken me. I've heard words, and now I want to mix faith with them so that I might have eternal life. Come into my life. Cleanse me. Make me new, I pray. 